right, we'll go again. So yes, today we will. We'll start in the book of Philippians. It's a great way to see exactly what the writers were communicating to uh, the hearers, which were various churches uh, around the Mediterranean Sea in the Roman world of that particular day. So today is uh, the book of Philippians. Who's heard of John Bunyan? There's a few hands going up there. John Bunyan, yeah, good. Good, excellent. Uh, He actually wrote the world's second most popular book outside of the Bible. I mean, the most printed book, the most popular book of the world is the Bible. The second most popular book outside of the Bible is a book called Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, uh, written in the 1600s. It's amazing to think that it's the second most popular book. Anyway, uh, interestingly, uh, John Bunyan wrote this from a prison cell. This incredible book that is the, that is the second most popular book in the world. Uh, in this place of hardship, God gave John Bunyan incredible insight into God and his ways. And today we start a letter also that is written from a prison cell. Uh, Paul the Apostle writes to the Philippians here with spirit-inspired truth for us to hear. And it's written from a Roman prison cell uh, Written to the Philippians who are many, many miles away. So just come with me now to the Philippians and we'll just read the first couple of verses here as we uh, think of Paul inside this uh, prison cell and writing this letter to the Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you today as we just start this incredible book, the book of Philippians, this letter that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write. We ask now, Holy Spirit, you would come and give us a heart to hear and receive and to just know and understand your will for us through this letter. Lord, even as we start on the outset, we pray now, Lord, that you'll do something incredible, something supernatural in our lives, and that is you'll continue this amazing transformation within us into the image of Christ. So we we ask and pray now as we go through this book, be with us in every way. Uh, Help me, Lord, as I just uh, begin to think about it and speak about it, that, Lord, good things will come out of this to help us honour and glorify Christ. Lord, with this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You can probably throw that map up too, Kath, uh, there as well. Look at a map there. Um, can you see Philippi in the fine print? Up sort of the top to the left between Macedonia and Thrace. You can see that word Philippi. That, um, let me step out of the way a little bit. That's a map of uh, Paul's second missionary journey around about you know, 40 AD. Yes, yeah, I follow the mouse. Um, so Paul's writing to this town of Philippi here, which is a major Roman uh, colony. And uh, Paul, at this point, we think he's in a prison in Rome somewhere, so he's writing this place in Philippi here. So it gives you a bit of a picture, um, map-wise, where they are. Uh, this is a letter that Paul's written. It's, uh, we call it a book, but it's actually a letter to, to a church in Philippi that he planted. To help us set the scene today about the birth of this uh, church and Paul's uh, second missionary journey as he went around the Mediterranean Sea. Um, Let me just read to you from uh, Acts chapter 16, which is really the whole picture of this church being uh, born, which I think is a great picture for us to see. It's a long reading, but we'll throw it up there as well. You can follow with us as we read through Acts 16. 
Verse 1, chapter 16. Paul came also to Derb and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the disciples and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. It's a great picture there even of the Holy Spirit just working in the lives right back in the early church, directing and leading. Verse 11. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neopolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading, a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where, supposed, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptised and her whole household as well, she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her own as much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order... He put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. 
And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptised at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house, set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, Those magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us in prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologised to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. That's a great testimony, isn't it? That is an incredible testimony of God's grace in seeing his kingdom grow in and around the Roman world at that particular time. Here's Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, obediently carrying out the commands of Christ, travelling around and speaking of the gospel, being led to the church, being led to the city of Philippi. God's purposes are for the uh, gospel to go out to all the world. Here we see just then the church is born in Philippi with Lydia, a professional businesswoman, a local slave girl who's demon-possessed, and a hardened bouncer come local jailer with his family. That's the first three converts here of the Philippian church. That's quite a diverse crew when you think about it, isn't it? Professional saleswoman, uh, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a sort of bouncer-type jailer. Uh, you probably wouldn't pick that for your church planting crew, I guess, if you were going somewhere to try and plant a church. It's amazing how God does incredible things that just defy our imagination. Having said that, Paul's also had a very hard time, as we read there, in planting that church. It wasn't all red carpet and roses. He was actually beaten black and blue with wooden rods, as we read there in Acts 16, thrown into jail. But even there, the Holy Spirit's taken Paul and used that situation to make it a gospel situation we could actually uh, reveal Christ. And then we're told next, Paul said, be out of town by the next chariot, as Paul has been told by the magistrates. Leave this place. And uh, he did. The world has always, unfortunately, resisted the gospel, but God in his sovereign free grace continues to overcome, overcome man's stubbornness and reveal his love into their lives. Uh, a great picture of that. So now we have Paul writing this letter to the Philippians some years later, thanking them and encouraging them to instruct them as well as we'll see down through the track. But for Paul, in the current point where he's writing this letter, uh, some things haven't changed. The gospel work is still hard work for him. He is still struggling and he's still, again, once more in a prison. I think the Bible records us maybe three or four times that Paul went to prison because of the gospel. Pretty hard work there. Pretty big sacrifice that he made. Uh, the scholars at this time believe he's in a Roman prison, perhaps in Rome. And just so we get it, Roman prisons aren't like the prisons that we have today. I know Pete does a fair bit of prison work from time to time. And uh, I know some of the local prisons we've seen on pictures on TV. And uh, some of them look like motels sometimes when you look at, the, at the, yeah, some of the prisons we have now. A nice comfy bed, they'll have a TV in the room, they'll have heating and air conditioning, so the climate's all controlled. A fairly comfortable environment, I guess, in that sense. But not so for Roman prisons. They are brutal places. They are harsh, dark and dingy. 
It's a place where jailers like to practice their latest cage fighting um, moves on the, the prisoners. They like to actually be quite brutal to them. And uh, this is where we find Paul writing this letter to the Philippians. It's an extremely hard and despairing place to be in. But you wouldn't think that as you read that letter, as you read Paul here, as you actually go through this letter written by Paul, you think this is the furthest thing from your mind as a dark, despairing place that he's in as he writes his letter. As we go through this, we'll see this letter is filled with Jesus Christ and the fellowship of joy that Paul has discovered in him. This letter is filled with loving affection that Paul has for the Philippian church. This letter is also filled with the gospel partnership that Paul also enjoys with the Philippians. It's an amazing letter. I want to encourage you this week, uh, read through this letter in one sitting. Four chapters, won't take long, probably take you about maybe 10, 15 minutes. And you'll see there, it's a great letter that Paul writes here from this really, really difficult place. From a prison cell, just like John Bunyan, it's amazing the revelation that God's Spirit gives to people in really, really hard places. So today, let's look at this greeting just to start this letter with here and see the the truth that's contained in there for us today. Paul starts this uh, letter by addressing the Philippians and he gives them a title as he does that. He says, to all the saints, to all the saints. In some other churches, uh, people must reach a certain status or perform some sort of incredible deed of endurance. And even then a bunch of priests or cardinals, sometimes hundreds of years later, to make somebody uh, to make somebody saint have to meet and then sort of agree upon that and to give them a title as a saint. Well, Paul makes it really clear here that's not the way it happens. That isn't the process of how you become a saint. We don't have some people who are saints and some other people who aren't saints. Paul says to all the saints... To all the saints, everybody in the Philippian church is a saint. In fact, anybody in any church who is trusting in Christ alone for salvation and walking obediently to his teaching is a saint. You might be quickly asking yourself now, well, what's a saint? I'm not sure what a saint is. It's not a St Kilda football fan, in case you were thinking, is it one of those saints? No, not at all. Perhaps the best way to answer this is from uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 where uh, Paul is addressing the Corinthians, and he says this to them, to the church of God that is in Corinth, very similar greeting to the Philippians, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those whom in every place are called upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. The understanding of saint here is one that has been set apart and made holy. This person has been made holy by Jesus Christ. When they've trusted in Jesus' death as payment for their sins, he has washed and cleaned them from the guilt of every sin they've committed. If you are a Christian in that perspective then, God sees you as a saint. A saint. But some of you might say, hey Todd, you don't know my past. You don't know what I've been up to. You don't know the things I've got up to in my younger days. How could I possibly be a saint? When Jesus cleanses you of all sin and guilt... Your past doesn't come into the equation. Think about some of the conversions here at the Church of Philippi that Paul addresses as saints. Think about the slave servant girl who's being pimped by a bunch of ruthless men. They're trying to make all the money they can out of her and she's demon-possessed as well at the same time. Can you imagine all the evil that she's been up to in her past? 
Can you imagine all the abuse that she's been up to or she's uh, come in contact with? Paul recognises her as a saint. Paul calls her a saint. What about the jailer? Now, these are the sort of guys who would rather a fight than a feed. If you had a good fist fight there waiting for them or a hamburger, they'd probably take the fist fight instead of the hamburger. These guys just like nothing more to actually clench their fists and go fighting people. A big, bad, bruising sort of a guy. Someone who's normally got anger management issues like these Roman jailers. Can you imagine how many jaws he's smashed in at the jail? How many arms he's broken at the jail? How much corruption's gone on in the jail? Paul recognises him as a saint. A saint. It's an endearing thing here as we see Paul address these guys this way as saints. It's an affectionate term. It's very much a unifying truth that God says about us when we're in Christ. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. When we trust in Christ and follow him obediently, we all become one person in Christ Jesus. We become saints. So whether it's Lydia, the professional, probably well-respected business person, or it's the servant, slave girl who's demon-possessed, in God's eyes, they're all saints. They're all saints. Now, just as much as Paul addresses us here as saints, as in equal status before God, which we have, we must also be aware that there are different roles and responsibilities we have as saints, and particularly, say, within the church body. Paul actually lists a few here for us, even in this opening greeting for the first couple of verses of the various roles and responsibilities we see. Verses 1 and 2, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, with the overseers and the deacons. There's a few different things he's actually sort of saying here as he opens up these first couple of verses. We have Paul then here, who has a role and a responsibility of an apostle. He's a saint, but he's an apostle. That simply means he's a sent one, sent by God, sent of God. And in this case, he's been sent directly by Jesus Christ. The apostles of the New Testament were directly commissioned by Jesus to build other disciples and in turn build the church. This was the role of the apostles in the New Testament. Saints for different roles and different responsibilities. We see in Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about that. Uh, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. These guys are responsible for the teaching we have today in the New Testament. This is the foundation of Christ, of the work of the apostles, as inspired by God's Spirit, that we can build our lives on knowing it's the truth that we can build our lives on. Paul also includes here overseers and deacons in this passage as well in verses 1 or 2. Firstly, deacons. They are saints. Saints who are called deacons in God's appointed order to manage the day-to-day practical side of the body of Christ. And a great picture of deacons we get from Acts chapter 6. Here we have the apostles of that particular time. They are absolutely snowed under with all types of work. Particularly at this point in time, it's the feeding program for the widows and helping other uh, disadvantaged people. Really, really great ministry, really, really important. But at that time, they were getting totally consumed by it and they weren't able to devote themselves to the ministry of the word and of prayer. They felt they were getting totally distracted away from that. So they appointed people to come and to administer these day-to-day practical things. Feeding the widows and helping the disadvantaged. They looked after all these practical needs and helped organise those things. They were saints just like anybody else in the church. No different, except they had a different role and a different responsibility. The Bible calls them deacons. 
week today might call them in a similar role our exchange board members who are trying to actually help organise the practical day-to-day life of the church. Paul also addresses overseers here. You might think, what's an overseer? Well, it's the same word as an elder. You may have an NIV translation or something like that. You'll probably see the word elder there. These are saints too, but they have a different role as well within the church. As Paul travelled the Mediterranean, the Roman Empire, and he planted churches here and there, he shared the gospel and the Holy Spirit opened up the hearts of believers just like Lydia here in Philippi. They became followers of Jesus Christ. And you can see this through the book of Acts, that what Paul did was go on to appoint elders or overseers in every church. Every place he went to, he appointed elders or overseers in these particular places. This is a role or responsibility that God has ordained for mature, godly men. These men must be sound in the faith of Christ and have an ability to teach others. Elders, overseers, must look out for the spiritual welfare of the church. That's the role and the responsibility God has given to these saints to see that the believers are growing and maturing in their faith. A really vital, a really important role. Also, a part of that role is to keep false teaching from corrupting believers' hearts. There are many false teachers in and around this world and they're really accessible by the internet. Easy to get hold of them. It's the job of the elders, overseers, as the saints... Their role is to to, uh, direct and to lead the church in spiritual things and to grow and mature the church. Paul gives us here perhaps a really vivid picture of some of these roles and how they're meant to be carried out. He says there in verse 1, he sees himself as a servant. He addresses himself that way right in verse 1. He says, a servant of Jesus Christ. The Philippians knew what that meant when they saw that word servant. To be called a servant didn't bring with it a title of significance. So some of these roles and responsibilities aren't sort of to be uh, put your name up in a light situation to really uh, puff up my reputation at all. It was a serving mentality here in these different roles and responsibility as the saints. As Paul had come to know himself and as Paul had come to know Jesus Christ, he knew that his was a place of servanthood to simply serve Jesus and to serve the church around about him. Paul realised that he belonged to another, and that was Christ Jesus. Paul was an apostle with the highest responsibility, or the highest name tag if you wanted to give it to anybody uh, within a church setting, but he took great joy as a saint in serving Christ and serving the church. So yes, we are all saints, But we may have different roles and responsibilities and we thank God for the different roles and responsibilities that he has appointed in and through the church so that we can enjoy fellowship together with him and bring honour and praise to his name. I just want us to stop now and reflect on this phrase here in the middle of verse 1 as we think about this idea of saints. Saints. Perhaps just open up a little bit more about Uh, what it is to be a saint or how we become a saint. It says there in the middle of verse 1, saints in Christ Jesus. Saints in Christ Jesus. How do I become a saint? We didn't touch on it before. Let's open up some more here. There are some people who believe that you have to be some sort of super holy, super sacrificial, super selfless type of a person to become a saint. Other churches have believed that and they practice that. 
Someone's name is this that early is put up to be recognised in that way and then maybe someone will give him the title of saint. The Bible doesn't support that, as we've just seen. How does the world view about becoming a saint? How does the world look at that at a particular time? As you would have seen on the TV over the last week or so, you've seen the, the trouble that Barnaby Joyce has got himself into. What would Barnaby Joyce now have to do to become a saint? Uh, he's a politician who's got himself into all sorts of drama through moral failure. Could he ever become a saint? Could Barnaby Joyce become a saint? Some in the world may think that if he get, if this is Barnaby I'm talking about, some in the world may think if he gave large amounts of money to charities and if he spent some time out maybe in third world countries and helping out in aid organisations, or he was seen to be doing a lot of work with his now uh, daughters, some in the world might think, actually, yeah, I think he's a saintly person. Some may think that if he was to do those things, to try and somehow um, earn sainthood or try and do something here to gather this title of saint. This is sometimes how the world thinks. That somehow if you do enough good things, it can somehow erase the past. It can sort of make the past get forgotten. By time and the good stuff sort of pushes away or wipes away all the bad stuff I may have done. That won't work. That won't work. You can't make yourself a saint by doing good things. No matter how hard Barnaby tries, he will still leave behind a devastated wife and broken daughters in the wake of his moral failure. He could give all the money to charity, go to aid organisations, and actually seem to be spending time with his daughters. That would be great things to do. But he still leaves behind a devastated wife and broken daughters. Dad, you walked away from us. How could you leave us? That's the devastation he leaves in the wake. A saint. A saint is someone who is holy and set apart for God. There's not one person on the planet who is holy and set apart for God in their own right. Not one person could they be called a saint in their own right by their own doing. And this is what God precisely requires of every human being, that we be holy. That's his requirement of us. But here's where Paul introduces this incredible phrase, in Christ. Saints in Christ. So what does Paul mean here where he says saints in Christ? We need to see here how God has dealt with all our failure to understand what in Christ means. Because here's where we see how God has dealt with all our moral failure or any failure or any sin whatsoever to make it, that has made us unholy. God has sent his perfectly holy son into this world, Jesus, that he's come and taken all of our failures and our sinfulness that has made us unholy upon himself. That's exactly what's happened at the cross. Jesus has taken all our failure, all of our unholiness upon himself. Jesus has taken God's wrath for our sin, as we just sung that line, that song before, so that when we accept Jesus and what he's done for us and receive the forgiveness that he now gives to us for our sins, we understand that a great exchange has taken place at the cross. A great exchange has taken place. All of our sin, all of our failure, 
all of the stuff that we've done that we could think of that has not met up to God's standard was totally laid upon Christ. And at the same time, that we, which we can understand, um, Jesus has actually given us his righteousness. So it's like an exchange. Or you might have seen that out on the emails, like the one big switch. It's one big switch. All of our sins taken off us and it's given to Jesus Christ and all of his perfect holiness and righteousness is placed upon us in a spiritual sense. So yes, Barnaby Joyce can become a saint in the eyes of God. Despite all of what he has done, the world may never see him as a saint, but if he is to repent and to put his trust in Christ, God will see him as a saint. Yes, he will carry the scars of sin. He will carry the scars of the failure and the disastrous choices he'd made. But God will still see him as a saint. Because God will see him in Christ. Clothed in Christ's righteousness. Clothed in Christ's perfection and Christ's holiness. He can be a saint. As we think about this today, how do we deal with this term saint in our life? Because I think sometimes we struggle with this idea of saint what it means. And I really, I really think it's a critical question for us to consider. I think the term saint can be seen two ways. Two ways for us. Some people, some people never fully grasp that that is how God now sees them. Some people really struggle with that. God couldn't possibly see me as a saint. Satan comes to these sort of people and what he does is he drags up all their past. He drags up all their past and he just brings it before them like a, a video screen. He brings up all their failures. He brings up all their moral, uh, sort of sinful, dirty, lustful thoughts that have gone through their mind from the past. He brings it up all before them. Or he brings up all the hateful thoughts they've done in the past, all the hateful things they've said. He just brings that up all before them again. Or he brings up to them again all the lies and deception they've been involved in in the past. Satan specialises in digging up the past and dragging it all before us. And he just holds it there like a video screen right in front of us and says, that's who you are. You're that person. What sort of a Christian do you think you really, really are? Satan tries to trap us by using our past to identify ourselves. Satan says, that's who you are. You're this person here on the video screen. He drags all the past up and he says, that's your new, that's your identity now. You're a bitter, jealous, lustful failure of person. And when people fall for Satan's deceptions like that, his lies like that, these people are crushed by guilt and doubt as their, as their past just flashes before them. And they can never really see themselves as a saint the way God sees them. It's critical that we see that we're not identified by our past whatsoever. That is not who we are. Yes, we've carried out those um, actions or words or thoughts, but that does not identify us. We can't undo the past, and yes, we carry the scars of those memories, but that does not identify us. In Christ, and through what Jesus has done for me, I am a new person. In Christ, I am a saint. Not because of anything that I've done, 
but all because of what Jesus Christ has done. So my past does not define me. I'm a saint in Christ. That's one type of person who they may look at this word saint, who struggle with that word saint. The other type of person who looks at this word saint actually goes the other way. They can think way too highly of themselves as a saint. It's amazing how we can sort of vacillate in either direction when it comes to this. Some can actually drive themselves into the ground and others can sort of lift themselves way up there as a saint. These people can easily begin to look down on other people and all their failures and then lift themselves up in comparison to them because I'm not as weak as that person over there. It's amazing how those thoughts just roll into our minds at times. We can begin to look down. It's a bit like Jesus when he's talking to the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple. Remember that story there? The, the, uh, the Pharisee and tax collector come in and what's the Pharisee do? Well, I thank you, God, that I'm not like that dirty, filthy sinner tax collector over there. You can see exactly what he's doing. He's lifting himself up there way up as a saint and he's looking down on this dirty, filthy tax collector as he sort of talks about him in that sort of um, despairing way. That's what happens. The Pharisee's pride easily produces this holier-than-thou approach. I'm a saint, I'm a real saint sort of thing. It's, that's what happens when we actually view ourselves way too highly. We look down on others. The answer for all this is we must find the middle ground. We must find the middle ground. We can't drive ourselves into the ground over guilt and condemnation for all in the past because that is the past. We're no longer defined by that. But on the other hand, we can't lift ourselves way up and look down on others who may be struggling and say, well, I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm a far better Christian than them. We've got to find the humility and find the middle ground here as we see ourselves called by as saints by God himself. It's a really critical thing we need to pick up. Yes, I am a saint. But it's by nothing that I have done. It's all because of the work of Jesus Christ and his grace that makes me a saint. And in that, I'm no different to any other Christian in this world. An old saying which is so true, that we all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. There are no sort of differentiating points here. We all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. Saints in need of the continual grace of God to keep us and to sustain us. This truth must humble us immensely just to hold that middle ground. Paul says often, he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. He knew where to find that middle ground. So here as we start this book in Philippians, I think it's a great place just to see here that God sees us as saints. It's an affectionate start here that Paul um, kicks off with the Philippians. Holy ones set apart for God. And from here he's going to go through all manner of things uh, for these saints who now are going to follow God and apply uh, his teaching and his truth to his life. So today it makes no difference whether we're in Philippi or the community of Greater Shepherd and today we are God's saints trusting in Christ and he's going to continue to pour his grace and his peace into our lives. As Paul closes up the street, let me read it for you one more time. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi or Shepherdon, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, we thank you today as we just uh, open up these first couple of verses in Philippians. Uh, Lord, thank you that you have made us saints through what Christ has done for us. Thank you, Lord, today that you see us as set apart 
and holy before you. Father, we thank you today that this is not a work of our own doing. It's a complete work of you through Jesus Christ in us and for us on our behalf at the cross. Father, today I pray for those who struggle with this word saying. For those, Lord, who are uh, guilt-ridden or feel condemned, Father, who continually suffer with the past being dragged up before them by Satan. Father, I pray for those ones today to see that they are not identified by the past. They can't undo what's happened in the past, but they're not identified by what's happened in the past. Today we are identified by Christ, that we are in Christ. I'm not in the past, we're in Christ. So please help us to see that. Holy Spirit, help those people today. Help them as Satan comes and drags up all that guilt and all that condemnation and tries to pour it upon them to crush them. Help them to look to Jesus and to look to the cross and to say, that's where I am. I'm in Christ. Lord, for those today who perhaps overinflate themselves, they can easily look down upon others and say, gee, I'm not as bad as them. Lord, today, please help us to be humble. Please help us to see that this truly is your work and that, Lord, you have made us who we are. And we would look upon others, not to look down upon them, but look upon them as eye to eye, shoulder to shoulder, to help each and every one of them, Lord, in this journey that we have. Father, we thank you for that now and do ask and pray, God, you would bless that to us today, that we are saints in Christ. And Lord, we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Lauren. You can uh, come back.